Father, thank you that we can just take a rest in you. Uh, thank you for the excitement of coming together and, and open up your word. Lord, I thank you that I get excited about uh, the opportunity not only to teach, but also to share the things that you show me as your word is so alive and it continues to, uh, as you reveal it, uh, even make a little bit more sense, a little bit more there. Lord, we'll never fully figure you out. If we did, you wouldn't be who you are. But at the same time, you choose to reveal yourself to us and you call us to a relationship of faith. But you also let us see a little bit more every now and then of your majesty and your glory. And Lord, as we see chapter 4 begin now here in Revelation, and the fact that you told John to come on up here and uh, see what's going to take place next, we get to see tonight a little bit of what he saw. In our desire to understand it, Father, keep us from missing your glory. Uh, help us to get at least a little bit of a taste of what it is that John saw. And even if we don't understand all aspects of what it was that he saw, may we enjoy the fact that we get to see a glimpse of what we're going to get to experience face to face one day. And we can't wait. But until then, uh, Lord, show us what you want us to see and how you want us to apply it and put it to use. By the power of your spirit and your kingdom, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to read you the whole chapter, verses 1 through 11. And uh, we're going to begin to break it down. But I'll tell you now, we're going to take a big detour tonight because at the very beginning of this chapter, there's a need to kind of lay out something that we've been kind of referencing all throughout the study. And we're going to have to really, really break it down and study. So if you don't have paper or pen, you might want to get some tonight. Uh, and there's some right here on the table because uh, I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures and dates and notes and different things and uh, the key to really understanding end time biblical prophecy is going to be given to you tonight uh, and so be ready for that alright we know we just finished the church age messages and and, uh, and John says after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white, and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things and by Your will they were created and have their being. Now, we are going to take some time tonight, and more in, of this chapter will be dealt with next week especially. But we're going to take some time to, to uh, break down these things. But I want to take a second to just have you not miss what's really going on here. You see, in our days of increased knowledge, there's a desire to figure things out. And we'll read a chapter like this, and all of a sudden everybody's first reaction is, well, who are the 24 elders? Are they angels? Are they men? What do they represent? And then there'll be people saying, what about these living creatures? And what does the ox represent? And what's the flying eagle? And, and what do the eyes all over their bodies mean? And these gemstones that we see here, are there any significance in the picture of, of what they represent? And as much as I believe the Scripture gives us answers to some of these questions, we run into the trying to figure it out too quick. What did John see? Worship. He saw worship. He actually saw God on his throne. For, for your own sake, write these verses down and go back and look later on on your own and do an interesting comparative study. Uh, to compare Revelation chapter 4 and 5 with Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6. You'll see pictures where Ezekiel is able to see God. 
And you'll see Isaiah being brought into the throne room of God. And yes, we're going to, in time, wrestle over these, who are the elders and these types of things and what's going on here. But first of all, don't miss the fact that John says after he had gotten this message to the churches and, and the other part of Revelation we already looked at, that same voice they'd heard speaking to him like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what's going to take place next. Well, who was that voice? Jesus. It was Jesus, remember? He heard a voice speaking to him like a trumpet. He turned and turned and he saw Jesus. So go to Revelation chapter 1 real quick and let me show you what we're talking about. Look at verse 19. Someone read verse 19 for us from Revelation chapter 1. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Alright, now this is after John. Remember, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He hears this voice. He turns and he sees Jesus among the lampstands. And then we have the description of Jesus in all His glory. And now he's told, write what you have seen, which is referring to Him among the lampstands. And John does that. He describes what he saw. And then what is, what is now, some translations say, your translation what was worded? Um, in the things which are. The things which are. Okay, and what th- that is the church age, if you will, that he's gone. And, he, and then chapters 2 and 3, we see the messages to the churches. And then he's told, and right, what will take place later, what hasn't happened yet. Now, at this point, there's obviously a break. There's all these messages to the churches. We've seen the downward decline of the, of the churches during the church age. We've seen pictures of us individuals in our walk with the Lord at different respects and times in our walk. We see at the same time these were literal churches that, that the messages were going to. But then at the end of this period, now John said after this, after he got these messages to these churches, that same voice that he heard speaking to him on the earth that sounded like a trumpet, he heard him from up in heaven. He looked and there was a door open in heaven and the voice said, come up here. And I'll show you what takes place after this. And from this point on, John sees the rest of what's going to go on the earth from the grandstand view, if you will, from the view of heaven. And interestingly enough, the church is mentioned all throughout the first part of the Revelation. But you never see the church mentioned again. From chapter 4 all the way until chapter 22, verse 19, I think it is, is the first time you see the church even mentioned again. And so there are many, and I'm one of those who believe that what we're about to see is going to be the tribulation period. What's going to be going on on the earth during that time period? The church has been removed, as we've talked about already. They've gone to be with the Lord. Uh, And now we're going to see what's going to be happening on the earth. And as I began to prepare to put together the lesson for tonight of breaking down Revelation 4, and we'll see if we have time to come back to it, I really felt like God said, you know what? You need to take the time to really break down for them Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9. We have to, because it's a huge key. We're going to be talking about so many things that will make so much more sense in the rest of this study as we look at what's going to be going on on the earth after we really understand Daniel's prophecy. So go, everybody turn to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. And we're going to break this down in some detail tonight. Now I'm going to give you dates and different places on the web that you can go and double check some things and passages for you to study further if you'd like. We're going to take a look at a lot of stuff like that. But this will be very, very helpful for you because there's a prophecy here in Daniel chapter 9 that you're going to see is kind of the key and the crux of all end times prophecy. Many things we're going to read about will make a lot more sense when you understand this prophecy. A lot of prophecies that that are in Zechariah and Jeremiah that we're going to be dealing with in the days to come are going to make a lot more sense when you understand this prophecy. So in verse 20, Daniel says of chapter 9 of Daniel, While I was speaking and praying confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for His holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. 
After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, to be honest with you folks, a lot of this prophecy would not have made a whole lot of sense if it hadn't already have been fulfilled. And that's where we're going to be able to understand the rest of this prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And so it's going to all come together. So what we're going to do, though, is go back to chapter 9 and go to verses 1 and 2. Sorry, 1, 2, and 3. We have to understand the context of what's going on here. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last seventy years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now the next verses there, from where we leave off, verse 4 all the way through verse uh, 19, are Daniel's prayer. And that's why in verse, nine, uh, verse 20 we see, while I was speaking and praying, praying, confessing my sin and sin of my people Israel, that's when Daniel comes and gives him an answer to his prayer, which we're going to get to in a second. But let's go back to Daniel chapter 9 there, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Where is Daniel at this time when this happens? He's in Babylon. He's in captivity in Babylon because the nation of Israel, because of their continued disobedience, they were taken out of the land and brought into captivity in Babylon. Part of the reason was that God had told them to every seventh year give the land a rest. There was to be a year Sabbath. They were to trust that God was going to provide for them materially and financially. And so part of what he did was to give the land a rest as well. They were only harvest six years out of the, uh, in a row. On the seventh year, they were to give the land a rest and they were to... Uh, trust the Lord that He would provide. Now, unfortunately, they kind of do like we kind of do, and we say, I know God wants me to tithe, but you know, I'm not paying my bills with, with 100% of my check. I don't think it's going to work with 90%. And they thought they needed to help God make it work out, and they weren't fully obedient, as some of us aren't, I'm afraid. And, and God then said, you know what? For all the years, and He counted up the many years that they should have given the land of rest, it totaled 70 years. There were 70 Sabbath years during this time period that they never gave the land a rest. And he said, because of that, I'm going to have you go into captivity for 70 years and give the land the rest. And so now go to Jeremiah. Keep your bookmark here in Daniel 9. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll see this prophecy that, that Daniel is talking about. Jeremiah 29. It's very interesting how many of us can quote Jeremiah 29.11, but I don't know how many of us really ever looked at Jeremiah 29.10. What did someone read for verse 10 for us? This is, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring back to this place. That's right. Now, if you want to look at it later on, Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, he had also said there that their captivity was going to be 70 years. So now, Daniel, knowing the Scriptures, is in Babylon. And at this time in Daniel chapter 9, you want to go back to Daniel chapter... Actually, don't go to Daniel 9 just yet. Keep it to Jeremiah 29. Sorry, got ahead of myself. But in this point where he's in Daniel 9, it's the 68th year of their captivity in Babylon. Daniel, knowing the times, knowing the seasons, knowing what's going on, says, you know what? There's only two years left of this captivity. And his heart was for the nation of Israel and going back to Jerusalem and all those things. And so he started confessing his sins, the sins of the people. He was crying out to God for God's mercy and for his promise that he knew in a couple of years they'd be set free and going back into the land. But now with this in mind, let's read this famous passage in Jeremiah 29.11, knowing that it comes right after verse 10 where God has just said, when the 70 years of your captivity are done, I'll bring you, fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity, 
I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Isn't that interesting how in this prophecy, wait a minute, why is he all of a sudden saying all the nations that I sent you? Any ideas? Also means this 48. This is not just the prophecy of coming out of Babylon back into the land. If they're paying any attention, they'd say, wait a minute, you almost sent us into one nation, Babylon. What do you mean you're going to bring from all the nations? Here, if you understand the whole of Scripture, you'll know that actually there are prophecies in Jeremiah chapter 12 and others where the Bible says that in the very last days, God will bring the nation of Israel back from all of the places that He scattered them. And what happened in AD 70, after the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, the nation of Israel was destroyed by the Romans. They destroyed the temple. That's why Jesus said not one stone will be left on top of another. And it's true. Not one stone was left on top of another. They were scattered out of the land to all the nations. Right now, what nation is the nation of Israel in captivity in? Well, if over the years we've said, well, we can't. There's a few. There's, they've been in Russia. They've been in the United States. Not really captivity. They've just kind of been banished. But then prophecy has been being fulfilled in our lifetime, folks, in which the nation of Israel is being gathered back into their land. They became a nation again, which is just a miracle in and of itself. And all of a sudden, prophecies like Ezekiel chapter 37 start to make sense with the prophecy of the dry bones and how the Bible says Daniel, I mean, sorry, Ezekiel was taken into this valley and it was full of all these just dead bones laying all on top of each other. And, and God says, can these bones live? And, and Ezekiel says, only you know. And God says, prophesy to them. And so Ezekiel preaches at these bones and they all of a sudden start getting up and the knee bone starts connecting to the shin bone and so on and they start coming back together and then sinew starts to get on them and muscles and and flesh and they're standing but the Scripture said they had no breath. And then Ezekiel's told to prophesy breath into them. And right now, we're living in that day when that prophecy is being fulfilled, when the nation of Israel, which appeared scattered and dead and non-existent for almost 2,000 years, folks, for almost 2,000 years, there was no Israel in the sense of them as a nation or a people, but God knew. God knew who His people were. And He began, He's now in the, we're in the last of the last days. We too, like Daniel, should be recognizing, you know what, Scripture's being fulfilled. Um, we don't know if we're in the 68th of the 70th year or whatever, but we know this much. Scripture's starting to line up. God, are you about to move? I hope so, I hope so as well. <laughs> Daniel, though, understood that and he began to pray. Now, going back to Israel, the dead bones have come back to life and they're up. But there's no breath. In other words, even though they're alive, the Spirit of God is not in them yet. But He will be. He will be. But He's got to finish with the church age first. And that's what we're going to deal with here as we go back to Daniel chapter 9 now, verses 20 through 27. Look closely. Somebody tell me, according to verse 24, sorry, verse 20, what was Daniel specifically praying about? Two things. All right. And requesting about the All right. So he's confessing the sin, his sin, and the sin of the nation of Israel, and making his request to the Lord for his holy hill, which is the city of Jerusalem. All right. Now, Gabriel comes and says, "I've been given instruction to give you insight." And then he says in verse twenty-four, 77s We'll get to what that means in a second. Are decreed for who? Your people. Your people. And your holy city. The two things that Daniel was praying about, God says, I'm going to give you insight now into what I have decreed, set apart for your people and the city of Jerusalem. So what we're dealing with right here is a prophecy concerning the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Okay? Alright? So now, he says, 77s are decreed for your people and your your, your city. Uh, and then it talks about to finish transgression and so on. And if we have time, we'll get to that. But we need to deal with what, is, what does he mean 77s? What is this 7? Some of your translations say 70 weeks. Well, the way up, 70 weeks. The, the, the word translated either weeks or 7s is like our word dozen. If I say to you I have a dozen, what do I have? Okay, but do you know what I have? No, you just know I have 12 of whatever it is. That's the same type of word here in the, in the Hebrew. The word translated sevens or weeks is like that. It's like the word doesn't. All we know is it represents seven of something. So now we have to figure out, okay, 77s of something are decreed. 
Could it be 70, 77 of days or a week? Or could it be years or whatever? We have to figure it out. Now the good news is, we've got enough being at this time in history of insight from Scripture and from history to know that, and I'll show it to you and prove, prove it to you, but I'm going to tell you now, the 77s, each 7 represents a 7 year period. Remember the context. What was Daniel praying about? He's praying about the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, but he was also in the context, he had remembered that the 70 years was coming to an end. So now, God taking the fact that he's praying about the 70 years coming to an end says 490 years are decreed for your nation and for the city of Jerusalem. I have set apart to accomplish what I want to do in the nation of Israel it's 490 year period. Alright? Let's say, Jim, how, how do we know that? Well, let's go ahead and begin. Well, the best way we can do this is to look at this passage and say, when, according to this, does this seven... Four, the 490 year period, when does it begin? Can anybody tell me? I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 25. When they uh, start to rebuild. When they, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem happens. Alright? Now, this is where you'll need your pieces of paper because I'm going to give you some dates and different things. And you can go double check all this. And, there's, and, and it's an interesting and this is a fascinating study. So uh, at the beginning, write down this uh, um, website. Okay? Write down this website. It's uh, aboutbibleprophecy.com. It's called aboutbibleprophecy.com. Let me say it one more time. Aboutbibleprophecy.com. Alright? And then, once you're there, go to the section that deals with Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. And you'll find a wonderful breakdown of this, which you can study, which you can double-check, you can cross-reference. And it's handled probably the best I've ever seen yet. So I recommend you go there. Alright? So, we see here that it's predicted or projected that this 490 year period is going to begin for the nation of Israel upon the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, we got a problem. There are four different types of decrees over the years that happened in the, uh, for the nation of Israel uh, according to Scripture. We have a decree by a man named Cyrus uh, we will find in the book of Ezra. Again, the dates and the passages are all going to be on that study for you. The, the some people think that it started with the decree of Cyrus. But if you look closely, Cyrus' decree was to rebuild the temple. This says the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is the starting point of this time period. So it's not Cyrus's decree. You'll read some commentaries and Bible prophecy people that say it started with the decree of Cyrus. No, Cyrus told Ezra to rebuild the temple. Okay. Now, there's another there's a decree by one guy named Darius at some point. You read about in the book of Ezra. You'll see another decree by a man named Artaxerxes, which you'll see in the book of Ezra. But I believe, and I can show it to you here, that the decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah is the actual beginning of this 490-year period. Go to the book of Nehemiah. Look at chapter 2. Now, a lot of people have trouble with Nehemiah because it sounds like it's supposed to be in all those Old Testament prophets and it's actually up in before Psalms and Job and Esther. Alright, so you know where Psalms is. Go in front of that's Job, in front of that's Esther, and then you'll find Ezra and Nehemiah. Go to Nehemiah chapter 2. Many's the time I've gone to look for Nehemiah, and I'm going through Daniel, Hosea, and it's, where is Nehemiah? Why isn't he one of the prophets here? It's because he's not one of the prophets, really. He's back in this section, so I helped save you the embarrassment that I've run through a few times. It's happened while I was preaching a couple of times. Going, I'll, I'll be right there. I can't find it. Alright, Nehemiah, look at chapter 2. It says, In the month of Nisan, and that'll be important, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad, and why are you not ill? Uh, you know, this can be nothing but sadness of heart. In other words, you're really depressed, but you're not sick. So, Nehemiah must have been, even though he was working for the king as the king's cupbearer, he must have been faithful to his work to the point that the king noticed that he was sad and he wasn't sick. He must have had a pretty good attitude, typically, and it was noticed that he wasn't himself that day. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and your, 
If your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. As you go on further, Artaxerxes says, go. This is the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Alright? Now, when did it happen? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Alright, we've got a little bit of information now. It's the month of Nisan, the year of King, uh, 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, give you a little tidbit here. Typically, in the Jewish calendar, because their way of keeping track of time is a little bit different than ours, they keep track of time in 360-year periods. Or 360-day in a year. I'm trying to say that again. 360 days equals a year. Alright? Uh, in our calendar, what is it? No. It's not 365. It's 365.25, but you're close. Right, exactly. On our calendar, it breaks down. That's why we have to have a leap year, you know, every so, every, so, every four years, okay? All right, but, but in the Jewish calendar, they kept track of time in lunar years, which was every month you get, you know, 30 days, you get a new moon. And so in the Jewish calendar, this will help you if you want to do the math. If you're into this kind of stuff, some people really are. You'll have a lot of fun with this, all right? There's 360 days in a year. Okay, and I can even prove it to you scripturally. You say, well, Jim, you're just giving us a number. How do we know? Well, let's head to Genesis chapter 7. Told you you needed a lot of notes tonight. Genesis chapter 7. Look at verse 11. Someone want to read verse 11 for us? Okay, that's great. Now, what, when, did the, when did the flood start? When did the rain come and the floodgates open? When did the flood start? What day? Alright, so the 17th day of the seventh, seventh, second month. Keep that in mind, okay? In their calendar, it was the 17th day of the second month. Alright? Now, someone read chapter 8, verse 4. on the 17th day, just like it was on the second month, but now it's what month? Seventh month. So how many months has it been? Five months. Now look at chapter 7, verse 24. The waters flooded the earth for how many days? 150. Alright, so you got five months. There's only 150 days in five months. How many days are there in a month according to their calendar? 30. So in the Jewish calendar... They're just counting months as 30 days, months. All of them are 30 days. That's how they kept track of things, all right? So with that in mind, we now know that it starts, the decree started in the month of Nisan, which, by the way, on our calendar is around March, April, all right? It depends on the year, whether it hits March or hits in April, but the month of Nisan. Uh, now we need to know what year. What year was the 20th year of Artaxerxes? There's ways to do it, and I could explain it to you, but you'd be sitting here going, and I'm not going to do that to you. If you're really curious, go to that website. It'll help you out. But there's ways to figure out what year it was through archaeological and historical, and you can actually look and count our years with the solar calendar, extrapolate it back. Let me just answer the question for you. It's 444 B.C., is this year, is the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, okay? So write that down now. you got 444 B.C. in the month of Nisan. Most scholars believe, and I lean that way too, that it was probably on the first of the month that this happened, and that corresponds with our March 5th, 444 B.C. on our calendar, all right? So, now, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 says, once the decree to rebuild Jerusalem happens. What happens next? How many sevens are decreed to rebuild the, the, the city? Seven. Seven. Take a look at it. You see, I want you to go back to Daniel 9 now. We know a grand total of 70 sevens, or 490 years are decreed. But now it says there's seven sevens and 62 sevens. Alright? Seven sevens is how many years? 49. Now, Nehemiah's book shows us that the, the, the walls were rebuilt in 52 days. 
But are we just talking about the rebuilding of the walls or the rebuilding of the city? The rebuilding of the city actually took 49 years. All right, so from the decree to rebuild until it happened was 49 years. And then after that, they say there's going to be 62 sevens between when it's finished being rebuilt until the anointed one, the holy one, is cut off. Now, those are their math majors. 62 times 7 is what? 434. All right? Now, which makes now a grand total of 483 years. Out of 490. With each year counting 360 days, how many days in 434 years? Quick. I mean, 483 years. There's always somebody that loves to do that kind of stuff. You got a calculator? All right. All right. You got 483 years times 360. 173,880. Yeah, that's right. 173,880 days. Folks, do you know what happened 173,880 days after what we saw in Nehemiah chapter 2 when the decree to rebuild the Jerusalem was made? No. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on that day. I want that to sink in for a minute. The prophecy here said there's going to be 49 years from the time it's decreed to be rebuilt until the city's finished being rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity. And then there's going to be 62 sevens, or which we know now as seven-year periods for the nation of Israel between then and when. What's going to happen to where it says? After the 62 sevens, the anointed one... Oh, by the way, in the Hebrew, the transliteration of that word anointed one is Messiah. Messiah. The Messiah will be cut off. And to the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was put to death. Now, those who have done the math, you have 490 years of decree for the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And 483 of them have already been fulfilled. What's missing? Seven. Seven. One seven is less. Left. 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 Look here at verse 27. He, we don't know who he is yet, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of that seven, he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed on him is poured out. Here in the prophecy, it says that the last seven is going to be marked by someone making a covenant with the nation of Israel. And then at the halfway point of that covenant with the nation of Israel, stepping into the temple from other prophecies, which we'll get to down in our study, declaring himself to be God, ending sacrifice, and breaking his, his covenant and his promise with the nation of Israel. So we know that there's one seven year period still left. But why the break? Yes. And we're going to show you scripturally that the scriptures have been talking about this all along, but we haven't really seen it. All right? But actually, in this prophecy, if you look closely, you can see that the break is even referenced a little bit. All right? It says, verse 26 After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Remember, the ruler who will come is this Antichrist that's going to sign the treaty with Israel. Well, who are the people of the ruler who will come? Well, we know now who they are because it happened in AD 70. Who were the people that came, right? The Romans. So, does this mean he's going to be Roman? Hang on, don't, don't run ahead. But the Roman Empire is the one who destroyed the city and we'll get to that further in our study of Revelation, which we're going to be using the whole of Scripture. I can tell you that's why we're walking our way through it slowly. The Scripture teaches that it's the rebuilding of the Roman Empire in the last days, which a lot of us know now is the European Union and these types of things, is going to be the seat and the head of this Antichrist rule and power. And I don't want to confuse you too much and run too far ahead. Just stick with me. This prophecy here said, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. And then he will sign this covenant. So, as you look there, this, there's a break in here in this prophecy that's kind of significant or, or, or noticeable by these wars will continue until the end. So what I want to do now is I want to take you through a quick study of the fact that the Bible has talked about this break in the time period for the nation of Israel all along. 
Alright, so go to Isaiah chapter 61. Somebody read verses 1 and 2 for us, please. And this, as we read this, remember, this is a very famous Messiah passage. All the Jews knew this was referring to the Messiah when he would come. But they don't read Daniel 9. Yeah, they don't read Daniel 9. Not, not much, anyway. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. To preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Okay. Now, Jesus, we see in the Gospels, went into his hometown of Nazareth. They recognized him as a rabbi, and so they let him teach or preach that day in the synagogue. And uh, so he went and he grabbed the scroll of Isaiah, and he read from this passage, and then he sat down to teach. And in sitting down to teach, he said, Oh, by the way, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, immediately everybody knew what he had just said. They didn't like the idea. They, uh, they said, wait a minute, that's a Messiah passage. You're saying that's been fulfilled in your hearing. You've just said that you're the Messiah. And they actually had such an aversion to him saying that he was the Messiah that they literally tried to drag him out, or they took him out of the synagogue, took him up onto a hill in this town of Nazareth, and tried to shove him off to his death. But supernaturally, he was able to walk back through the crowd and just just leave. But Jesus said that this was referring to him. But look at what it says. He's come because the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, anointing me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or your said acceptable year of the Lord. Is that what it, that was worded? Well, what year is that? It has to be more than just a year, you know. And that word year must mean time period of the Lord's favor. I always jokingly say, if you're going to pick a year, let's pick 65, 1965. That's the year I was born. That, that had to have been the acceptable year of the Lord, you know, but uh, Becky thinks so. But, um, but depends on the day. It depends on the day, right. It's obvious that the word year means time period. This acceptable time period of the Lord's favor. All right? Now go to Romans chapter 11. I'm just going to jump around in this chapter and read a few places. If you want to read the whole chapter on your own, you can. Paul's been talking about salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. He's been dealing with wonderfully deep doctrine. And then he says, I ask then, chapter 11, verse 1, did God reject His people by no means? I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. Don't you know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Now, go to verse 11. I ask, again I ask, did they stumble, talking about the nation of Israel, so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Alright? Now, jump down to verse 25. It said, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the Gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that He may have mercy on them all. Here, Paul clearly says, folks, God's not done with Israel. God's not done with Israel. 
They've received a hardening and experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. But God is going to finish what He started with Israel. From Daniel chapter 9, how can we know that for sure? I'm going to ask the question again. From Daniel chapter 9, how can we know for sure that God's not done with Israel? There's another seven left. If God literally fulfilled the prophecy of the 49 years and the 60, sorry, the 434 years to the day, don't you think God is going to literally fulfill to the day that last seven year period for the nation of Israel? Yes. They've been put on hold for a time. They rejected the Messiah. They killed Jesus Christ. But don't get mad at the Jews. The Bible says you killed him and I killed him. He was killed because of our sins. That's why he was put to death. The nation of Israel then was scattered to all the nations. And God has now been working in this time period, it's been almost 2,000 years now, that we call the Age of Grace. The year of the Lord's favor. But the Bible has all along said that it was going to be for a period of time. But in the last days, He would gather the nation of Israel from all the places He'd scattered them back into the land. And that began happening in our lifetime, folks. And it's now happening in in the midst of us. How many of you know any Ammonites? We read about them in the Bible, but they don't exist anymore. How many of you know any Moabites? How come the nation of Israel still exists? Because God's word is trustworthy and true. Because He made a promise to them. There's an interesting verse in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, where God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not destroyed. God says, the only reason you're still here is because I made a promise to Abraham, and I'm going to keep my promise. And I said that you would be an everlasting people, and you will be. But it ain't because you've been good. I have had many times that I've wanted to wipe you off the face of the earth. But I haven't because I don't change. I keep my promise. Oh, by the way, folks, that's a blessing for you and me, isn't it? Because the Bible says our salvation has nothing to do with us. You don't have to work to keep it. Well, what about those who could look? You can't lose it! It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with who God is and the promise that He's made. Thank the Lord for that. But let me tell you, the signs are starting to line up according to all of the prophecies in the Bible, that we are in the last of the last days. Just like Daniel began to recognize, hey, the prophecy said it was about, it should be coming to an end in a couple of years. In the same way, we don't know the day or the hour, but we definitely should recognize that it's coming to a close. Why? Because the nation of Israel is coming back into the land. And there's many other things. Go ahead, eat it. I'll be honest with you, I don't know if he knew at that point or not. I don't know. All I know is, is he got insight and he was to write it down. And he was faithful to do what he, you know. A lot of us, if it's not going to bless us, we don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. Sure, go ahead. I have a friend, we were talking about dual citizenship. And I was telling her that I don't know if I'll be honest, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know this much. There's something right now in the nation of Israel called the Aliyah, uh, which is Jews from all over the world who have never been to the nation of Israel all of a sudden feel like they have to go home. Remember, remember E.T. phone home? We're dating ourselves a little bit. You know, There's something happening all over the world where Jews who have never been there have this urge to, I need to go back to my homeland. Now folks, let's be honest. You've seen the pictures. You've seen what's going on over there right now. Some of us think about taking a trip, and one of the questions we ask is, will it be safe? But people all over the world, and hundreds, we're talking literally hundreds a day, are flying on planes back into the nation of Israel. Parties go greet them with ram's horns and shofars and and, and, and nation of Israel flags and welcome them. This whole thing going on in the news right now of them, the, and, and I hate that it's happening because it's going to be punishment for us, but our president telling them, you can't build anymore in Jerusalem and you can't build anymore in these areas that you've occupied. Folks, you know why they're building? Because there's so many people coming back into the land. they got no place for them to live. That's the other thing in the end time when, uh, you know, when uh, Israel is attacked. Okay. attacked. 
nobody is there to help them. Nobody's there to help them. And and we're that's, setting ourselves. We're, setting, oh, we're, we're no longer being their big brother anymore. And the prophecies say that's all going to happen. Folks, we've seen the rise of the European Union again. And all of a sudden now the confederation of all these nations, which used to be the Roman Empire, is being rebuilt. And you're going to see this as we go through our study of Revelation. All these things. But I really felt like God wanted us tonight to really start to get a, our teeth into Daniel 9. You really got to understand this prophecy. There is a last seven year period for the nation of Israel that hasn't happened yet. And when this age of the church comes to an end. Oh, by the way, does anybody know when it comes to an end? At the rapture. We don't know the day of the hour, but we, but we know what, what, what marks it. It's the rapture. When he gathers his bride. And it's getting close. It's getting close. Now, let me show you one other verse about this church age a lot of people don't know about. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. So what Paul says. Now remember, Paul had said he was in Revelation chapter 11 that he's the minister to the Gentiles and God had been saving the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Paul said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God, uh, God's holy by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Here Paul says, look, let me just tell you, this whole church thing, I didn't even know anything about it, and I knew the Scriptures inside and out. But God has now revealed that this has been His plan all along. And if you know my history, Paul said, you know I went and tried to stop the church. I tried to kill these people that said they were Christians. But God opened my eyes to the fact that what they are saying and what they're believing is true. Jesus was and is the Messiah. He's the one who was sacrificed for our sins. And by faith you can enter in a relationship with God. And oh, by the way, God has been trying to get the nation of Israel for years to understand that it's not by their works, it's not by their effort, it's not by their keeping of the law, but by faith in Him as their provision that they would be given righteousness. It's been there all along in the Romans. Paul talked about it in Abraham. And it is by faith that he was given righteousness all the way through the nation of Israel trying to earn it. And God said, that's not how you get it. You trust me for it. And then when they rejected him, which he knew they were going to, he now has been saving the Gentiles. But there's going to come a point where that comes to an end. And when it does, he gathers his church and he finishes his last seven year period with the nation of Israel. And that's what we're about to study in Revelation chapter 4 all the way through into chapter 20. Now, tell me real quick where we are time wise. Ten till. Ten till. Alright. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 4 then, real quick. Any questions before we go back there? Could you start over? Yes. <laughs> I, I could and I'd love to. And I'd probably add more. But uh, we'll stop. We'll, we'll, <laughs> go online tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yes, go right ahead. When you said people that shall come, the prince will be of that same people. Does that mean that the prince, the beast, we don't know that. All, all we know is this much. Because again, here's the tricky part. We have hopefully come to realize over time that prophecy makes more sense when it's been fulfilled. For example, for example, you know, back before Jesus came, before Jesus came to the earth, the prophecy of the Messiah said that um, out of Egypt I have called my son. Yet in Micah it said he'll be born in Bethlehem. Yet the prophecy said that he's going to be a Nazarene. 
So yes. people beforehand were going, how can this be? How can you be born in Bethlehem but be a Nazarene but come out of Egypt? That's not possible. But now, because of hindsight, it makes so much more sense. He was a Nazarene because that's where he grew up. That's where his mom and dad were from. He was born though in Bethlehem because of the census. But because of them trying to kill him, they had to go hide in Egypt for a while until that died down. And out of Egypt, they called his son. So all three of those now, with hindsight, make total sense. So my answer to your question is, we could say, well, then he might mean he's going to be... We can't go there because we don't know. We do know this much. He's going to be from that people. What that literally entails, right now we got Christian theologians wrestling over whether or not he's going to be a Muslim, whether or not he's going to be a, a Jew, whether or not he's going to be a Gentile, all these kinds of things. And all I can say to them is this. The Bible says, take this message of Book of Revelation and these Scriptures to heart, and if we're alive in these days when they happen, and I don't believe we'll be here when the Antichrist is revealed, it'll, the prophecy will make sense and you'll know what it means. So, uh, do I think he's going to be an Italian? I couldn't even tell you that. I don't know. He could be. Definitely can't rule that out. <laughs> yeah, but we don't know. We really don't know. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it's the best I can give you. That's the best I can give you. They occupy a large area. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. It could be. Some people, there are some that think he's going to be from Denmark. Uh, it depends on who you talk to, and they all have their reasons why. And I just say, we still didn't know what all that meant about Egypt and Bethlehem and, and, and Nazareth. So don't try to run further than the Scripture. If we don't know, we don't know. I could be from the UN. <laughs> he could be from the UN. I don't know. I mean, th there's lots of things. And we'll get into that as we get into Revelation. All right? But look, look what it says now. After this, I looked, and there before... Me was the door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white, and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God. And then it goes on to describe the sea of glass. What I want to do real quick in this last little bit of time that I have left here, um, we're going to go into great detail next week on who are the 24 elders, but I'll tell you right now, I believe without question, and I can show you through a lot of scriptures, I believe the 24 elders are representative of the church. I believe it's the church. There are some that think it's the church and Israel. I'm going to show you scripturally next week why I believe it's just the church who is sitting on these thrones. But we're going to take a look at the fact that they're sitting on thrones. We're going to look at some of the promises of Jesus to the churches in all these passages we see, to Him who overcomes. And we're going to take some of those promises and you're going to see how He's been drawing this picture for us of these 24 elders on the throne and how it's representative of the church. Further evidence that the church will be in heaven during the time of all this. But I want to ask you, who's sitting on the throne? Because John says there was a throne in the center and someone's sitting on it. But he doesn't tell us who. Who's sitting on the throne? Jesus. Okay, we got some. God sitting on the throne. All right, <laughs> you saying God because that covers the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Nice, safe answer, and your answer is correct. We try to get into all, well, it was it's Jesus on the throne, or or it's God the Father. Well, um, yes, yes, because remember how Jesus Bible says that. God told him to come and sit at his right hand until he makes all his enemies his footstool. Mm -hmm. Well, there's only one throne. Mm -hmm. So, they must both be sitting on the same throne. He's sitting where I want to be in Daddy's lap. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we're trying to give God a human body. Jesus has one, though. Jesus has one, though. And uh, so, just for a minute, this is what I want us to do. Close your Bibles for a second. Try and put yourself in that situation. Don't try to figure out who the 24 elders are yet. If you've if you, if you got some issues on that, let them go for right now. Don't try to figure out what do the living creatures represent. Don't, don't try to figure out the color of the stones. And For a minute, let's not run by the fact that 
John was taken in the Spirit into the presence of God. And the beauty of what he saw was just amazing. And everybody, the elders, the living creatures, all that were there just kept falling down on their faces, giving their crowns to the one on the throne. And all they said was, you're worthy. You created all this. Now later on in chapter 5, they're going to praise him for the fact that he redeemed them. Further evidence that it's the church, not angels. But right now at this point, in our rush to figure everything out, Stop and be like a child. And picture the beauty of it. And spend some time just worshiping. You see, many of us, I've come to realize, myself included, we tend to worship God as a means to an end. Lord, I, I love you. Could you answer this prayer request? And we, we, we tend to come to Him. And I do too, folks. Most of my prayer life is a list. But how often do we just stop at, hallowed be your name? Oh God, you're holy. Okay, now can we get to my list? And we've done this with this study of Revelation and our zeal to figure it out and argue with each other over whether or not it means this or that. We've missed the fact that John got to get in the presence of God. Now, this caused Isaiah to go, I'm not worthy to even be here. As you'll see in the book of Revelation, it almost gets comical how many times John falls down in, in almost like a dead man in worship. And the angels keep telling him, get up, get up. But he can't help it. He gets to get overwhelmed. Is he enough? Is he enough? Man, we gotta, before you leave, get a chance. Open the door. Let the air conditioning out. And just go out there and just look at the ocean. Think about how big it is. Now, have you ever thought about this? How many of you have ever carried a five-gallon bucket of water? Is it light or heavy? It's amazingly heavy, isn't it? Just five-gallon bucket of water. Have you ever thought of how many five-gallon buckets of water are right out there? How come this earth doesn't fall out of orbit? When you really start to think about how many concrete buildings we've set in certain parts of the globe and that our towers go so high... You know, think of how much weight the concrete ever had. You know, just think about the weight of the concrete of the cities. Yet it doesn't spin out of orbit. Yeah, it came from there. Right? Well, I'm not. I'm not talking about at, not acting that it added to the weight. I'm talking about we moved it to one section. Normally, that would throw something off center, would it not? Let me just tell you right now, folks. All these Greenpeace people and uh, you know green stuff, folks. We cannot destroy the world. God controls all that. Now, we're to be good stewards. Don't hear me wrong. It's going to be replaced anyway. Don't think that we have as much control as we think we do. So I'm going to challenge you in this week to come, between now and when we come back to Revelation 4, get outside. Don't sit in the man-made light, man-made breeze. Don't sit too much in front of the television or the computer this week. Get outside. Side. I do that a lot. I go out at night and I sit on the back porch and look at the stars and talk to the Lord. But every now and then a plane will go by and I'll start thinking, oh, how many people are in that thing right now? And I lose it. How does that thing stay in the air? John was able to see God on his throne. And we sit around arguing over who the 24 elders. Let's pray. Father, in this study of Your Word, please keep us from missing You. Yeah, we want to be faithful to Your Word and we want to compare everything with the whole of Scripture. And that's what we're trying to do even just a little bit in this study. And that's why after so many weeks we're only in the beginning of chapter 4. But that's okay. And we already said at the beginning, if we don't make it to the end of this study and You come get us before then, that's okay with all of us. But Lord, in our desire to now start getting into some of these things that... Oh, what are these things? And does that mean a helicopter? Or is that a nuclear war? Lord, in our desire to try to figure it out, may we not miss You. May we spend some time getting this glimpse of who You are that You gave to John. There's some things we're going to see later on in the study that he saw and he started to write them down and you wouldn't let him write them down. But what we have here in chapter 4, he was allowed to write down and that's for us. So, Father, tonight, as we wrap this study up, I just simply say, You 
are worthy to receive honor and glory and praise. You are the one who created all this. And by you, they exist. Oh, I know years ago some people tried to say you were dead. If that was really true, we would have evaporated. We would have ceased to exist because in you we live and move and have our being. We do not even have a breath if it wasn't from you. Yet, Father, because of this silly flesh that we get cursed with, we, we want to be like Satan and we want to call the shots. We get mad sometimes when you don't give us the job we wanted or the promotion that we thought we deserved. or We ask you to keep someone from dying and then they died. There are times in our lives that we want to sit on that throne and tell you how it ought to be. And Father, tonight I just say, please forgive us. Thank you for the fact that you knew that already before you made us we are going to be like that. Thank you that just like a loving parent loves that child in the middle of their temper tantrum, you do the same thing with us. But Father, give us a glimpse like you did Job. He had all these issues and questions, but when you showed up, they went out the window. Oh, Father, I pray that for not only us, I pray that for our churches. That a true holy view of who you are would, would, would be what really fuels who we are and how we act. And all these things we fight over in the church would just go by the wayside. Because you are enough. Even if they make a vote that I don't like. I've got you. As we sang today in a group of men there at Central Baptist because He lives, because Jesus lives, I can face tomorrow. I don't even know what's going to help me tomorrow. It might not be good in my eyes, but I can face it because You're alive. Lord, You're enough. May we see You on Your throne. And may that be enough for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.